I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. Welcome to this week's episode um, the Six Queens podcast. This week we are going to be discussing the pilgrimage of grace. So very much leading on from our discussion last time on the dissolution of the monasteries because that nicely sets us up for everything that we have going on today. And as normal we are going to be putting it into the context of how it affects our queens and their lives and their involvement in the pilgrimage of grace because they were definitely there and they were definitely affected by it and we're going to be talking specifically about two of our queens today and that is Jane Seymour and Catherine Parr. It's interesting to study this event just because it's so big in Henry's reign. It's such a huge event. It's the biggest popular rebellion to his reign. So you know, interesting on a national scale, but then actually looking at it from the points of view of our two queens who directly witnessed it or aspects of it just goes to show how um, it affected everybody on like a micro personal level as well. And I think it says a lot about um, Catherine and Jane, their experience with this particular event. So, you know, interesting just to contrast the political military history side with the, okay, what's going on for the women on the ground? Yeah, definitely. And I think just to put some context in that, when we say it's a rebellion, like the biggest rebellion of Henry's reign, it's estimated, give or take, that there's about 50,000 rebels involved in this. And again, just to put that into context, by the population size of the 16th century, that's a lot of people and a lot of regionally focused people as well. Because when we're talking about this um, rebellion, it's primarily focused in the north of England. So while it's quite far away from London, it's still the amount of people that are involved with it and the types of people that are involved with it is a proportionate threat to Henry and to his reign. So I think before we go much further, I think it's probably worth just pausing here and just asking ourselves the question, what was it really the pilgrimage of grace really about? Because it varied for different people, really. Realistically, um, there were two main causes that people were really concerned about. One of them was to do with taxation and to do with land enclosure. So how people kind of were able to farm and make their living and the taxes that were being raised as well. But I think the most significant one for us in the content of this series of God and War is to do with religious change, specifically to do with the dissolution of the monasteries and to do with the kind of turning away from Catholicism and the rise of Protestantism within the country. It sort of goes back to what we were talking in the very first episode of the series where there's so much confusion amongst the common people who are, you know, on the ground while these decisions are being made for them. Yeah, we talked about how it was just so confusing and things were changing all the time. So then imagine that the center of your whole world, your your church and your faith and maybe the local monastery and the clerics who come from there, they're suddenly being taken away. And you're worried about how that affects your daily life. Some people were even worried that things from their church would be stolen. Like there was a church in Yorkshire, I think, that uh, was really worried that all of their plate would be stolen by Cromwell's men who were going and taking away anything to do with like idolatry and wealth and excess in the churches. So this was a really, you know, big deal for them. And it just goes to show you that 
though Henry could get support from some of the people who were closely around him, who understood the game of politics, the people were actually the ones feeling this and who were very concerned about how this would actually affect their day-to-day life, not just how we worship at court. They are at the heart of communities. They are kind of financial centres and education centres and workplaces of well-being. So you take those away and you create this vacuum of which nothing has been put in place to kind of replace. And it is it is taking the hearts out of communities and the, the separating that physical presence of God, in a sense, away from people. And they're not sure how to handle it or how to kind of process it. And I think that's kind of picked up on in point number four um, of that in the, uh, the Pontefract articles and um, which is our list of demands, where it says the suppressed abbeys to be restored to their houses, lands and goods. And I think that's quite important how specific that is, because it's not just the buildings, it's the content of the building and everything that they represent too. And for the people who actually live there, you know, the monks and the friars and the nuns, it's their way of life. It's for most of them, the only thing that they've ever known. So a lot of them participate in this as well. It's a movement that involves so many different people it's um you know lawyers it's the some minor nobles some higher nobles it's some uh, some clerics some ordinary farmers you know it it it's a cause that so many people can get behind and as you said so many people do that it's not just a you know a local tax rebellion of people getting mad at the sheriff or it's it's a big deal and it escalates very quickly Strategy-wise, I think the rebels really were clever about how they went about actually rebelling. It wasn't just, you know, staging mass protests in the streets, sort of like what we envision today. But they were actually trying to take over pockets of Yorkshire and the surrounding counties. So they were trying to get noblemen involved so that there could be strongholds of the rebellion. So they took um, Pontefract Castle, for example, which is a huge center of power in the north. They actively controlled that and it was their base of power. It's not just people, you know, picketing. It's, you know, they're taking over places. And that's how our friend Catherine Parr comes into it, because at this time she was actually living in the north with her second husband, uh, John Neville Baron Latimer, who she married in 1534. They were from a big northern family, the Nevilles, uh, Lord Latimer, and he had a huge estate up in Yorkshire. And interestingly to note, he was religiously conservative. So though he didn't actively oppose the king's remarriage and the split from Rome, he was personally against it. So when the rebels decided that they needed to get a few notable names on their side, they actually went after Catherine Parr's husband. So it's interesting, uh, Latimer, her husband, has a a bit of a weird position in all of this because you can't quite tell whose side he's actually on. Spiritually, he is probably on the side of the rebels, but he's also a politician and he knows that this is not the way to get anything done. So he is caught between a rock and a hard place, especially when they actually go to his house, his castle, and they effectively hold Catherine Parr, his young wife, and then his two children from his other marriage, her stepchildren, hostage. And they say, come join us, come join the cause, take our oath that you're you're for us, or we'll hurt your family. 
it's a rough one, isn't it? Yeah, Catherine was directly in, involved in this. She was right there seeing all of this happen. And this is what's interesting, is the distinction between a popular uprising and a rebellion. Had they not gotten people like Neville involved, it would have stayed as a popular uprising because they were, quote, common people. By getting them involved, what they're doing is they're aggressively tipping the scales and and where, you know, Catherine and her family are involved to gain that notoriety and to gain that driving force that's going to get the attention of people like Henry. But then you have to ask yourself, at what cost? And apparently, for them, it's the cost of Catherine Parr's safety and the the safety of her stepchildren. Yeah, it's not endearing anyone to your cause. But they are clever in the way they go about it, as you said, because it's not just they're going to every castle they see and let's take that castle. They're being very strategic about it. They they picked Latimer for a reason. They knew being a a Northman, even a noble, but a Northman, that he probably did have the same conservative religious beliefs of everyone in his community. So when Cromwell and Henry start getting reports that all of these different nobles are becoming involved in this, they don't know whether it's because of their beliefs that they know that they have, or if it's because your wife and children are being held hostage. It could it could go either way. Their, their cause is just in a way, and they're being very clever about who they bring into it. But ultimately, yeah, you're still breaking into people's houses and holding their, their stuff hostage. <laughs> We see that in the response then that the rebellion has. So the Charles Brandon, the Duke of Suffolk, is actually sent up north to try and negotiate with the rebels and to try and get them to kind of go home peacefully and to, you know, say, you know, we're sorry, we, we made a we made a bit of a whoopsie here. So I think the fact that it was tried to try to be dealt with that way initially in about the December of 1536 is kind of testament to that. Once it was realised that that was never going to happen, that's when we see the full force of Henry's rage at the situation um, kind of play out. And it's one of the turning points, I think, in Henry's reign, because it's the first instance when it becomes really clear that civil war could be imminent. It's not just, you know, Thomas More doing his his sort of quiet protest or getting rid of the people who were, you know, at court dissenting about Henry's marriage. This was a group of people who could, in some cases, be considered an army. This is a fear he would have been, you know, that would have been very acute in his brain. And the fa- and I think for a lot of people who were still kicking about, they don't want to go back to that. They, they've seen what civil war does to, 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 to people and to a country. And it's just, well, let's be honest, it's not fun, is it? No, nobody's, nobody's, nobody's ever really having a party. I want to go back to considering Catherine Parr's role in all of this, because not only was she experiencing it firsthand, you know, she was, as we said, uh, basically under house arrest and not knowing if her, her husband would be okay at the end of all of this and if she and her her stepchildren would be okay. I think it's also interesting to consider, though, from the retrospect of Catherine Parr being heralded as a figurehead of the English Reformation. Uh, Catherine Parr was one of our queens who made her beliefs very well known. Uh, she was a known reformer, but we're still in her early years here. She's she's in her early twenties, and I don't know. A lot of people don't know if she held those beliefs yet. So we don't know if she didn't like the rebellion because she thought all these people were just, you know, 
whining and not going with the flow or if she still felt some kind of sympathy for them we don't know but it is interesting to consider that she's seeing all of the political ramifications of this and what can happen physically violently when it gets out of hand so we'll talk about this in a future episode how Catherine's political skills are really refined and she knows exactly how to hide her her religious views in plain sight but interesting to consider that this might have been the point at which she learned how to do that how how could it not how could seeing something like that and you know being involved in effectively being kidnapped you know you're not going to wander around with a banner saying i'm a reformer it's just not going to happen especially seeing what happened after the rebellion. I'm just going to jump ahead slightly, not spoiling how, how the rebellion ended, but <laughs> but uh, safe to say that it, it didn't end well for the rebels. I think we made that clear. But because Catherine's husband, uh, Lord Latimer, was involved with the rebels, his life was still in jeopardy. So Catherine's family, actually, her, her brother William, who was in court and trying to move up the ladder probably was the one to put in a good word for Latimer and ultimately saved his life there. They argued that um, even though he had taken the oath of loyalty to the protesters, he had done so under duress. And so it doesn't actually count as an oath. If you're being forced to take an oath, it's not really coming from your heart. It doesn't count. So Latimer was ultimately saved. But Catherine was there on the sideline wondering if her whole existence would be compromised by the fact that she not only was going to potentially lose her husband but her whole world her reputation her she would have these two children to take care of who who weren't hers so she's okay maybe it, it's worth it to not necessarily voice your your beliefs and just go with the flow because otherwise this is what could happen this is a chapter of her life that I didn't really know a lot about until I read um, Linda Porter's biography of her. And it really made me see like, oh, OK, you can see how the wheels started to turn when she was when she was young and how she built up this political armor from having actually gone through this experience firsthand. So um, as we mentioned, then the um, the rebellion was put down um, somewhat violently. And I always think the choice of who he sent to put it down is quite telling as well. As I mentioned, it was um, the Duke of Suffolk, who, much like um, Latimer in a way, was quite quiet about his religious beliefs and kind of just to towed the line. But from what we know of him, had very conservative leanings, you know, religiously. So well, you also had the Duke of Norfolk in there, who was seen as one of the um, eminent military minds of England at the time, which mm -hmm. <laughs> says a lot. But <laughs> but he was also somebody who probably had a bit more conservative beliefs when it came to religion. So, yeah, the, the choice of people is interesting. It just shows you even more that people were torn between saving themselves and their reputations on the political scene. But you know, their their personal beliefs and their conscience is also at stake. So just interesting to see who leans to what side in all of this. No doubt that 
what they were tasked to do would have been not an easy thing for them to do, especially if you're, you know, kind of identifying with them on on a um, ideological level. In an uncharacteristic move for Norfolk, who is for sort of famously um, bombastic, I think is one word to say, <laughs> is that he actually caved to a lot of the rebels' demands when they actually met, uh, when when he went up to the north and actually met with them. And yeah. he didn't, he wanted to avoid civil war. He did not want to fight his countrymen, especially over a cause that he probably sympathized with to some extent. So he actually said, you know, you know what? Okay, the king's going to listen to your demands. He's going to um, spare your lives. None of you will be harmed in this. Your cause is just let's talk about it. And that gave the rebels some hope because that's really all they wanted was to be listened to that way. And really, when you look at it, though, the, the Duke didn't have the authority to say that on behalf of the king. And it ended up really biting everyone in the ass in the end. Henry had no intention of being flexible at all, did he really? He was actually, um, some of the leaders of the rebellion, I should say, so that includes people like Robert Ask, you know, under the pretense of Norfolk's full hope, false hope was actually invited for an audience with the king. And they thought, you know, this is our chance, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna get everything sorted, we're gonna get it all laid out, you know, we've got our, got our 24 points in our, in our plan, what could possibly go wrong? oh, my sweet summer child, how could possibly anything go wrong when Henry is involved? Ask was actually executed in York on the 12th of July, 1537. So, um, you know, as we mentioned, this this uh, rebellion took place, started, I should say, um, in the October of 1536. So it's really quite drawn out, you know, in terms of quashing everybody effectively. Legally, um, in terms of who was held accountable for this rebellion, Henry tended to target all of the well-known people, the the organizers of it, who actually a variety of people in that way. Uh, we gave you the the estimated numbers in the beginning of how many people took part, but um, Henry singled out 216 men in total who were executed for their participation in the Pilgrimage of Grace. Um, lots of members of the nobility, the minor nobility, plus, I thought this was interesting, 38 monks and 16 priests. So holy men were involved in this and were executed, maybe not as theatrically as somebody like Robert Ask, who was directly in charge, but still they, they were held guilty of treason and, and executed for it. Henry was taking no prisoners. Well, he was but they were all executed. He he was not leaving any survivors from this episode, and he was going to make absolutely everybody an example where he could. This um this then brings us on quite neatly, I think, to our second queen who's involved with this, Jane Seymour. Because of her reaction to the Pilgrimage of Grace, it's very I think it's fair to say that she um was a lady of conservative religious feeling, or at least a sympathizer of of the kind of Catholic cause in England. This is one of her most famous episodes as queen, just because, yeah, I think it, it says a lot about her that she made her feelings known on this. Maybe not as forcefully or as, as plainly as Anne Boleyn might have, but she came close. Um, Eustace Chapuis, the imperial ambassador, did write that he thought that Jane was a softer influence on Henry. So maybe this was just going along with her more feminine persona of um you know interceding on behalf of the people 
her conversation about this to Henry was recorded by the French ambassador at the time who wrote that Jane actually threw herself upon her knees before the king and asked him to restore the abbeys. So this was one of the things that the rebels were specifically asking for. And she just said, you know, let's let's give them what they ask for and maybe this will all stop. Henry was not amused and her feminine charm did not work in this case. He told her to get up and to stop meddling in his affairs. It does show us a very different side of Jane. And it's very much a Jane trying to exercise her, her kind of self politically and trying to become politically engaged. I mean, it, does, it doesn't necessarily work, but it's very different to that image that I think we're very familiar with of her being meek, meager. It's interesting when she chooses her moments, as I said, it's, it's this and it's regarding the king's relationship with his daughter, Mary, Catherine of Aragon's daughter. Jane very much advocates for Mary being brought back into court. But it just it is interesting to note that the two times she st- sticks her neck out for people, it's Mary and the Pilgrimage of Grace. Well, that's quite interesting as well, because point number three of the Pontefract articles has to do with, you'll never guess who, Mary and her legitimacy. No way. It's interesting that all of Jane's kind of, as you said, next sticking out episodes align with the Pilgrimage of Grace. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Hmm. Have we just sold a historical mystery there? I think it's definitely a, a reasonable suspicion. If anything, we'll we'll never know. It's not like Jane wrote it down ever. So it's just all sort of, um, you know, circumstantial evidence that we can guess at. But like you were saying earlier, even if it doesn't show black and white what her personal political feelings are, it does show that she had them and oh, that sure. she was playing a very careful game. Her whole bound to obey and serve thing was probably less of her personality than historians have allowed for. It's just that in Anne's shadow, she knew when to play her hand and when not to. Actually, the French ambassador wrote that Jane was quite scared by the king's reaction to her plea on behalf of the rebels. She was sort of put in her place. And there is some version of the account which says that Henry said to Jane, you know, mind yourself, you know what happened to your predecessor. Not verified, it it might be one of those things that's sort of been colored over time, but the point stands that Jane was put back into her place and scared into submission. I can't imagine it being too far off the truth, really, especially as we start to see Henry unravel, and quite quickly unravel in terms of his approach to dealing with threats and opponents, his response becomes very violent. Certainly. And a lot of people wonder whether or not Jane would have survived that version of Henry, because it really only starts about this time. And Jane's only going to be alive for another few months after this, once she gives birth to Edward and dies in childbirth. So it would have been interesting to see how Jane dealt with the more tyrannical Henry. Like, Would she become a little bit more outspoken? Would she be scared into submission like she clearly was in this case? Or would she have been a gentler influence on him? Uh, We don't know. But it certainly did not work in the case of the Pilgrimage of Grace. No, not at all. Not at all. But uh, yeah, just interesting to consider Jane as the politician. That's something we rarely get to do. Yeah, it's quite a nice side of her as well, because I think sometimes there's a personality that we forget Jane has. And, you know, it's not just as a queen, 
but you know she is someone who has her own mind and has her own thoughts it um it made me think of one of my favorite quotes about jane that i always for almost forget to come back to just because the story of her being the submissive wife is so prevalent but Agnes Strickland, who was a Victorian historian, she was one of the first women to actually write about the, the six queens of Henry VIII. She wrote that Jane existed, quote, in the shadow of the axe. So very much knowing how she came to power in the first place. But then she writes that given her known instances of attempted outspokenness, so like this instance with the Pilgrimage of Grace, quote, Perhaps we should view Jane not as the queen who was the most submissive, but as the wife who was the most consistently silenced and overruled. I think that's so true. I was, I like that. Yeah, because she was either, in this case, scared into submission. You know, she makes a plea and she does it in a very conventionally feminine way, you know, like getting on your knees and, and begging for something from your husband. But yeah, she was uh, told no and reminded in the probably sternest, scariest way possible that if you say anything else, I could get rid of you just as easily. Like, remember how you got here. You know, it's the idea of kind of politically engaged women and knowing how to act, but also being aware of the situation that they're in. I just want to wrap up our discussion by pointing out a couple of things that in researching this I found interesting. I always knew that the, you know, the rebellion was put down and it had a great effect on Henry's reign because it's the first time that you really see him becoming tyrannical, but also being viewed as tyrannical in the eyes of his subjects. Like his his reputation started to decline after this and he became he was seen as increasingly more volatile towards his subjects. It wasn't just Cromwell being blamed anymore. It was it was everyone made clear that Henry was was on this side. But it's also interesting because actually some of what the rebels wanted in the first place, Henry agreed with and locked down quietly. So it wasn't spun as necessarily a victory for the rebels, but we can see that Henry knew the risk of having another conflict like this and so did quietly make some allowances. And I just want to I want to lock in on one in particular because it sets us up for the next episode quite well that any progress that the reformers had made especially during Anne's reign was a was pretty much undone by the pilgrimage of grace because Henry really doubled down on what he considered to be heresy. And so the views of somebody like a Cranmer or the emerging views of someone like a young Catherine Parr were really sort of cemented as being incorrect. In 1538, he there's a royal proclamation that makes it very well known. So yeah, it just it just goes to show that even if the rebels didn't didn't win, they they did succeed in convincing Henry that he needed to make it very clear that this was not a reformation of religion. They can keep their religion. They just need to admit to a few things like uh, the Pope not being head of the church or um, monks not being necessary, etc. As you said, very specific things. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Six Queens podcast. 
Next week, Callie and I will discuss the ideological reformation and its impacts on the Tudor court. In the meantime, you can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram, and you can subscribe to us on all the major podcast apps. And if you will, leave a review and a rating. Long live the Queens. <laughs>